Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I am Rachel Woody. I'm here with here with Bill Blosser. It's January 8th and we're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. And Bill, my first question for you is why wine? You did say that was going to be your first question. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a big, it's an evolution of a lot of different things. And uh, I had always basically had, since I was a kid, a desire to do something in agriculture and grow something. And so it, I came into the wine industry more from the side of growing grapes than making wine. Now I loved wine and I, I had uh, a father-in-law who had a wonderful cellar and so I had the ability to experience lots of great wines. Uh, uh, but wine wasn't part of my family or my growing up. Um, uh, but growing things was, and uh, so I really came to it from the idea of uh, having a small vineyard, selling the grapes to other, hopefully other wineries around the area, and so that was really how I came to it. And then uh, it's one of those things where, you know, one thing leads to another. Um, you know, we're, we, grew, we grew the grapes, they were doing very well. Other people were making some great wines out of them. And so we slowly evolved to where we built a winery. And it's been a great thing, but it wasn't the initial impetus. Can you tell me a little bit about what your career was before wine and what brought you to Oregon specifically? Well, I grew up in, in the Bay Area in California and uh, had, uh, my mother was from Seattle, and I had uh, all my cousins and my father's sister were here in Portland. So we spent a lot of vacations in, in Oregon, in the Portland area. So Oregon was always sort of a second home anyway. Uh, and then after I graduated from college, uh, got married, and my wife um, wanted to get a master's degree at Reed uh, in teaching. And so that was why we initially moved to Portland. Um, and then by <clears throat> a bunch of just sort of accidents and happenstance, we discovered that some other people had figured out that Oregon or the, particularly the Willamette Valley would be the ideal place to grow Pinot Noir in the United States. And so we uh, initially had thoughts of moving back to California and growing grapes there. But once we, uh, by accident, you know, found these other people, Dick Erath, Dave Lett, Chuck Curry, those three particular people in particular, um, and my love had always been uh, Pinot Noir in the first place in terms of wines that I loved. And so it was just a sort of like a natural, like the forces were coming together and said, you need to stay here. One of the questions that we like to ask some of the people who have been in the industry for a long period of time when it first got started is, were you consciously a pioneer of the wine industry? Well, I don't know 
No, I mean, we were, I mean, I don't know exactly how to interpret or answer that. Um, we knew we were the beginning. I mean, there, were, we, there was nobody else around and nobody else was growing grapes. So in that sense, yeah, we knew we were pioneers, but we, we didn't intentionally, I didn't intentionally start here in order to be a pioneer rather than go to California where you wouldn't be a, so much a pioneer. Um, but no, we weren't really thinking of being pioneers. We were just thinking this is something we love to do, something we'd like to try. We don't know if it's going to work. Uh, all the other farmers in the area thought we were nuts. Um, and, but you know, we had other jobs, and if we failed, we could go back to our day job. And uh, it wasn't our, you know, we, we could take the risk, uh, which other you know, existing farmers couldn't take the risk. So, you know, we weren't trying to be a pioneer. We were just trying to do something that we thought would be a great thing to do. In your mind, when you guys got started, what was the definition for success? Well, I think the, success, the definition for success, for us at least, every year was to survive one more year. And it, it, it was around you know, trying to be financially, survive financially one more year, um, and, uh, and then have you know, the grapes survive, you know, be able to, to grow them and see if we could solve the uh, climatic issues about how do you grow grapes here because we couldn't we couldn't just take what they had done in California or what they had done in Europe and just uh, directly apply it because the, there's an, there's a, enough differences that we had to experiment um, and learn and so there was always the risk every year that you, know, you have a total crop failure and you might go broke um, so we, we were really had short-term goals of just trying to make it one more year. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think any of us really had a vision or a dream of what it could be because we just had no idea. We just, we were still trying, our nose was so close to the ground or the grindstone, just trying to each year solve another problem, whether it was mm -hmm. a, a, a vineyard problem or a winemaking problem that was unique here and that you couldn't just call somebody in California or Europe and get an answer. Yes, in fact, um, that's one of our questions is for the people who were here in the beginning, who did you turn to for help or, or how did you teach yourselves? Well, <clears throat> the, the basic knowledge about how to grow grapes was you know, there were lots of books, either either in from Europe or from California. Um, so then it became a question of, okay, which variety, you know, which clones of the varieties are going to do well here? What spacing will work best? And so we were trying to adapt more to Europe because the climate was more European-like. Um, but we didn't have some of the equipment that they had, so we couldn't quite go as far as the little low grapes that you see in Burgundy, because mm -hmm. um, we didn't have the over-the-road tractors here. Um, and also we had, uh, you know, Americans were generally bigger, and so the bending over to those little rows was killing everybody's back, so we wanted to get the grapes up a little bit higher. And so we adapted stuff 
from, from France, from Germany, and from California, and tried a number of different things. Um, one of them um, that uh, Scott Henry uh, devised, which is a, just a variation on what everybody else was doing, uh, has been adopted worldwide. It's called the, the, the Scott Henry system. I've been in New Zealand and they say, yeah, I have a Scott Henry uh, tra training system. So, but then it just took time and experiment and, and there was a lot of interest. You know, every, the, the wine industry overall worldwide is a very collegial and, and uh, friendly business. And so people were very happy to give us ideas and, and thoughts and uh, the, the federal government was very helpful in uh, doing the uh, heat treatment and re, re, um, of, uh, of, of material that we wanted to bring from Europe to get them to be virus free mm -hmm. because they weren't all virus free and we, uh, we, weren't, we didn't want to introduce viruses here. So the federal government did a lot of great stuff at their uh, facility down at Davis to clean up um, material so we could have a wider range of, of clones and of particularly of Pinot Noir. Um, so we got a lot of help from a lot of people. And actually at the very beginning, OSU was extremely helpful that way too. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of um, shanghaied a little bit of money here and there out of, I don't know where it all came from, I don't want to ask, um, to give us some uh, initial support in um, doing, uh, for example, we did, I don't know how many, 10 or 15 plantings of like 20 or 30 different varieties and clones uh, in vineyards around the state so that we could get climatic uh, information um, and see whether a Pinot Noir clone might do well in the Dundee Hills but not very well in the Eola Hills or might do terribly in Roseburg. So they helped us uh, you know, plant those things and, and do the data collection. And, um, and then when we eventually got to the point where we were able to, to start raising money ourselves, by a, uh, initially by a grape tax, then we were able to pay that back and to pay OSU and they could then hire staff. And, and so they now have a, a quite a good program of both vineyard as well as winemaking because now we can support them. But at first, they were willing to say, okay, these guys may not be crazy. Maybe, maybe this grape thing will work. And so they, they put some investment in it and we would have been in deep tr trouble without that. So mm -hmm. the short answer to your question is a lot of people helped and a lot of people gave uh, their support kind of on the side or just advice. Uh, uh, so we were, we were lucky. When you got started, and, and when some of the other early, the pioneers got started, you mentioned very much needing the day job, and I know that a lot of you did have day jobs. What were some of the examples of those day jobs, and <coughs> do you feel that they um, helped feed into the industry, or were you able to build upon those for the industry? Well, definitely. Um, Several of the people that came in, uh, Erath, Ponzi, for example, were from engineering. Mm -hmm. And so they had, uh, and they were, or chemistry, they were very analytical. So they brought in a lot of just good methodology about how to 
do things mm -hmm. like clonal trials and winemaking trials and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, my background was in urban planning, mm -hmm. so I brought in the whole th the thing that uh, when we got involved in the, the uh, Senate Bill 100, uh, the, the beginning of the land use program in Oregon, um, trying to identify a methodology for uh, identifying what would be the best vineyard lands in the Willamette Valley so they could be zoned properly during that planning process. Mm -hmm. So I was very involved in that. Uh, as was Dave Adelsheim. <clears throat> um, and there were some people that were, had a sort of a PR, public relations background, and they were very useful in our trying to figure out how do we promote the industry. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody kind of contributed from, uh, you know, the wealth of background that everybody had. It was very helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, speaking specifically to Senate Bill 100, I know that was one of the many things that you helped to champion mm -hmm. in the wine industry. Can you tell us what the impetus was that for, since it's such a, a pivotal piece of the history here? The, the impetus for Senate Bill 100 or for my being involved? or Both, I guess, okay. depending on what your answer is. How did you guys know or, or how did it occur to you, we need to protect this land? Well, well once Senate Bill 100 was passed, it required the counties to do a planning process and reanalyze uh, how they had designated land. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, most of the hillsides had been sort of written off as being not terribly agriculturally valuable. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them had been, even from back in the, 18, uh, the, uh, the 1920s and 30s, way back then, had been already divided into little five-acre tracts. Because even back then, they thought <clears throat> that they were good home sites. And so let, right. let people go put their home up on the hillside, where it was a shallower, more rockier soil, not as fertile, as, as opposed to the broad Willamette Valley, which was very re deep and rich and mm -hmm. very, very fine agricultural ground. So uh, even the Dundee Hills, where we are, there were uh, it would be hard to find a piece of property that was over 20 acres. Um, it had been divided up so much, the Eola Hills was the same way. So there, had, there was a predisposition in the old zoning that this should just be home sites. Um, the Senate Bill 100 required a re-analysis of that whole premise. And so that's, we jumped right into that to say, yes, this lot of these hillsides could be marvelous for grapes. Mm -hmm. And if this is a successful industry, they'll be, they shouldn't be allowed to just go to uh, uh, you know, tract homes. Mm -hmm. So, um, and at that point also, there wasn't a huge market demand for homes in the hills. It's a long ways from Portland and those, a lot of those tracks, as I say, were divided in the 20s and they were just still sitting there as five acre tracks, but mm -hmm. they had cherries or prunes or other things on them. Um, so uh, we had a window there where um, uh, there wasn't a lot of opposition from from the rezoning or downzoning to uh, maintain it as agriculture hmm. um, and remove the ability to just have a, a tract home on every one of those little pieces. So that's what we did. We got involved in that. We created a, 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 
a, a formula that the counties could use to figure out where the best uh, grape land would be. Mm -hmm. And so virtually all of that got uh, rezoned and uh, has uh, you know, stayed available for, for grape land. And now there's, I don't know, 15 or 20,000 acres of it here in just in the Willamette Valley. Right. <clears throat> for both when you were getting started in the vineyard and winery and also for the industry, what were some of the early lessons learned or obstacles that you had to overcome? Well, that list is a long one. Um, I'd say the most fundamental one in my mind is that we were never going to make it if we didn't work together. Um, and so we were driven to to need to be cooperative and support each other and and share information and um, because as a new industry starting out that needed a lot of help from other people, it, it wasn't going to work if we each person tried to do it by themselves. Um, and second thing I guess I would say is that we found early on that we really needed to develop a um, uh, a relationship with the legislature and the Oregon Liquor Control Commission because mm -hmm. they, the two of them, really controlled our ability to be in business. And at that time, the OLCC, there were no wineries hardly, there were a few, but they, their regulations were not set up to allow us to do the things that we needed to do to be successful financially. So like have tasting rooms and <clears throat> do tastings at grocery stores and a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, and so we needed, we needed to get some of the things we needed, we needed legislation, so we had to build uh, relationships with legislators, uh, the governor's office, and so forth, to get the backing we needed for the right legislation, as well as the regulatory stuff in the OLCC. Probably one of the biggest initial ones was, that made a lot of difference, I think, in the, the way the legislature treated us, and OLCC, is that in order to raise money for OSU to do marketing and uh, uh, vineyard work and winemaking wine work, we imposed on ourselves a $25 a ton tax on grapes, which at that time, and maybe even still is, the highest on a percent basis for any commodity, any agricultural commodity in the state, maybe in the country. Um, but we, we kind of figured out how many tons of grapes are we going to have by what date and how much money are we going to need to do anything and we divided it and it was like 25 bucks and we, we swallowed but we said hey that's the only way we're going to raise the money that we have to have mm -hmm. to do the marketing the research, and the research. Um, so it's turned out to be a huge boon for us but it also showed the legislature and the governor that we were we weren't just out for a handout. We were willing to put our own money on the line. And um, so we're basically 100% self-supported. And we haven't, we haven't had to get any state funding. Um, we do get a little bit of federal funding, um, but for marketing, mainly international marketing. Um, so that's, uh, you know, again, we, we, we knew we had to uh, uh, cooperate with ourselves and we, had to, we needed to tax ourselves to make it happen. Um, you know, you're talking about obstacles too. 
uh, as part of this cooperating, we, we saw that at the point where we started, California was, you know, we all think now of California as this huge uh, wine country, you know, area, just, you know, Napa Valley, and we have this image. But at, in 1970, 60, late 60s, early 70s, it was a very small industry. Uh, in California, and they were just barely coming out of the post-prohibition death to the industry. Mm -hmm. uh, the first new winery built in California was 1965, which was Robert Mondavi in the Napa Valley. And up to that point, there, there, were, there hadn't been a new winery in like 100 years. Mm -hmm. um, and so California, though, was quite a bit ahead of us. But we saw right away that for us to even begin to catch up with them or to, to create uh, uh, a, uh, an understanding in the United States consumer that Oregon made good wine, that we needed to cooperate not really within the state but with uh, the Northwest. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our initial marketing things were Oregon, Washington, Idaho. We went together and we did booths in uh, Chicago or New York or whatever, uh, we did uh, events to introduce them to Northwest wine. And then uh, after 20 years or so of that, we can now go just do Oregon. Um, although when we go, I was just in London last March doing a um, uh, trade presentation on wine and we were back to where we were 30 years ago in the sense that California, Washington, Oregon, we're all in the same room, uh, divided up, but we're trying to break into the international. Mm -hmm. And so we needed to cooperate as American wineries. Um, uh, and, but here in the United States now, we pretty much go as Oregon. Uh, but so that early cooperation was necessary just because nobody, particularly on the East Coast, which is the biggest market, had any idea of American wine in the 60s and 70s, let alone Oregon. And when I first was on the road selling, uh, we first started selling internationally in uh, 1978, 79. Um, I had to take a map with me to show people where Oregon was. You know, and on the East Coast, it was Oregon. Mm -hmm. So we, now it's amazing. People say Oregon. You know, <laughs> but there wasn't a person on the East Coast that could, could say Oregon. So we let alone know where it was. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, in 1977, the Trailblazers had been successful in winning. <laughs> and so people had heard of Oregon. Um, but they didn't have a real good concept of quite where it was. <laughs> mm -hmm. But so as far as wine, they had no concept. Um, so we had to do a lot of things. Um, there were a lot of tastings we did, comparative tastings we we fomented, and the, you've probably read all, you've heard other people talk about that or read about them, the, the Burgundy tastings mm -hmm. that occurred in the mid 80s, early 80s, <clears throat> that helped put us on the map and show that we could really make some great wine. Um, so, um, but again, we, and then I think one of the other big things that we did to try and put Oregon on the map was the International Pinot Noir celebration right here at Linfield. Mm -hmm. um, our very initial thoughts about that were that we were not going to have another uh, wine competition because if we had a competition, 
no one was going to come except Oregon wineries. Um, California wineries wouldn't want to come. Definitely the Burgundian wineries wouldn't come because why come compete against somebody that isn't even a factor in the market yet? Right. So we made it a celebration of Pinot Noir and everybody was happy to come uh, because we weren't trying to prove that we're better than you. And that has become a huge success marketing-wise, image-wise for Oregon um, and for Pinot Noir as a grape because it was, um, it had been the, the, uh, the lesser known grape, um, I would say, particularly in the U.S. market, not in Europe, but here in the United States, the, the cabs and Merlots were <clears throat> much better known. So, um, so other obstacles, I mean, we, we had a lot of just, uh, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, issues about how to make wines with the particular acidities we get, the, the, um, the different mildew issues that we have in the vineyard versus what California or Europe has, um, the um, yield issues, you know, what's the right yield? When we finally got phylloxera, what were the right uh, rootstocks to use to get the right balance of rootstock with the, the vine up above? Um, there were a lot of those things that came up, but there were no, none of those were fatal issues. I mean, the things we had to work through, and we had to make them work. Uh, and we, we, we learned a lot. We did a lot of experimental experiment. And um, you know, a, a good example of the cooperative thing that happened was you probably heard other people talk about steamboat. Well, it was an initial uh, uh, idea that we don't really know how to make Pinot Noir very well in a lot of cases, or things go wrong and we don't know how to fix them. So it was an initial thing between Oregon and California of maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 winemakers would gather for four or five days at steamboat, and everybody would bring basically defective wines, things where things had gone wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we would sit around taste them and say, okay, everybody would analyze, oh, what did you do? What could have gone wrong? How could you fix it if you can fix it? And it was sort of an off the record, you know, no one's gonna criticize anybody. We all got problems. You could also bring good wines, so it wasn't <laughs> always you brought bad wines. But um, it was a, 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 you know, it was an obstacle to figure out how to overcome some of these um, uh, winemaking issues, and the solution was get everybody who's making it together and have everybody just bear their soul, and it's still going on. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great institution. Mm -hmm. um, so, are there any other, are, do you have any thoughts of other obstacles or uh, issues that other people have mentioned? That I think, either? sorry to interrupt. Right. Um, the, the issue of size of the state and how spread, especially in the early days between Umpqua Rogue and the North Willamette area, I think issues surrounding that and also when you're trying to get the groups together, what was some of the history and the evolution that had to happen there? Well, one of the things that we, we faced immediately when we started working with the legislature was that the legislature didn't want to have three different Oregon wine industry representatives coming and talk to them. Right. So they didn't want someone from the Rogue saying one thing and someone from the Willamette Valley saying something else. The first thing legislators told us is, we want one voice 
come together. If you've got issues, you work them out. Mm. Then come to us. We're not here to referee disputes amongst you guys. Right. Um, and there were differences of philosophy, particularly between the, the, the rogue uh, Umqua area um, and the Willamette Valley. Uh, and they were, in the retrospect, petty and small, but still they were emotional issues. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they, so, but the legislature basically said, we don't want to get involved in any of this. You guys work it out, you come to us. So we were really forced to have one statewide organization. Mm -hmm. And we split apart at least once, maybe twice, uh, because we got into arguments. Um, but whenever we went to legislature, we went as one. Mm -hmm. But we actually formally split a couple times, but then that only lasted a year maybe, and everybody saw this is stupid, and we came back together. Um, and so it is a diverse state. There are different interests, and we've just learned that if we're going to make it, we've got to be, you know, one voice at the table when we go to reg regulators, uh, legislature, uh, when we market nationally. We can't market Southern Oregon versus Northern Oregon. I mean, the, if we were, even Burgundy markets as Burgundy, even though there are you know, 50 appellations there, or whatever it is. Um, and you go to big international um, wine fairs, France, you know, Marcus as France, mm -hmm. uh, and then they have, you know, they break down within that uh, in their booths and so forth. But so we have to market as Oregon, and we can't split it up. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, we learned that right from the very beginning. The legislature basically told us <laughs> we want one voice. So we ha we've done we've done well with that. What were some of the the sticking point issues for that had different philosophies surrounding them, and how did you guys overcome them, or did you? Well, <clears throat> I'm actually trying to remember what some of the stick what the issues were because as I said that they were, in retrospect, kind of petty, and that's because I can't remember what they were. Well, um, if I may but, help. Yeah, maybe you remember. Yes, okay. um, we had a, actually a research <clears throat> question surrounding um, the labeling laws, uh, which in going through, in fact, your collection with the Wine Growers Council when that first split off, probably the first time from the guys down south, uh, it was the difference in trying to make the labeling laws very accurate, which is what Willamette Valley was seeking, mm -hmm. versus um, one of the wineries in Roseburg, I believe it was Bieland, who was doing a Johannesburg Riesling. Mm -hmm. So trying to find the, the documentation of why did they split off? Was it because of labeling laws? How did you then get around it? Because of course now we do have <coughs> very strict labeling laws. Right. In the case of labeling, I think, um, I, I, you know, I don't recall, I mean, Dave Adelsheim is the one, and Dick Erath that were very deeply involved in that, and Adelsheim particularly. Um, I don't recall um, how we ended up making the proposal we did to the OLCC, like on an issue like um, uh, Johannesburg Riesling versus White Riesling. 
And I don't remember how that resolved because there were at least Bieland and maybe um, Richard Summers had a Johannesburg recently. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how, at what point, maybe they were um, uh, grandfathered in, allowed to keep doing that as long mm -hmm. as they were a winery. I don't remember exactly what we did. Um, I think there was a grandfather clause yeah. in there. So that may be the way we resolved that particular mm -hmm. thing. There weren't very many. At that point, there <clears throat> I know that one of the reasons we jumped on it early on, the issue of labeling, was we knew that the more wineries that there were, there would be more people who got invested in a particular name. Um, Sauvignon Blanc versus uh, Sautern versus you know, other names that they might use. Um, uh, Chablis, you know, labeling things Chablis or Burgundy or all the other generic names. Mm -hmm. um, so we knew that would get worse and worse unless we did something early. Um, we could see what had happened in California. We saw that the federal government really didn't care. Um, they just, you want to call it Chablis, call it Chablis. Um, so uh, we, we knew we needed to get a rational system early. The second thing that was really driving us was that we felt that to set ourselves, or set Oregon apart, we needed to set higher standards than the federal standards for percent of grapes in uh, a, a bottle if it had a varietal name on it. Mm -hmm. So um, at, at that time, the, I think the federal is still the same. You could have um, like 50% Pinot Noir, 51% Pinot Noir and call it Pinot Noir. And we didn't feel that that, we thought that was not truth in labeling and we, and that wasn't good in our, we didn't think we could build our reputation around you know, that kind of a blend. So we went to, with all the varietals, I think we went to 95%, uh, except uh, the ones that had traditionally been blended, so Cab and Merlot and Cabernet Franc, that group, uh, has a lower percent, if you want to put a varietal name on it. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, over time, California wineries have come to the same conclusion, and they developed this whole new system of, um, uh, Red, red blends uh, and they don't put the varietal name on it because they want to have the freedom to you know, put the amount of Cabernet or Petit Verdot or whatever into it. And they, uh, you know, Opus One still sells for $150 a bottle and there isn't a varietal name on that bottle. So um, I think the industry as a whole has grown up and has recognized that what we did made, made sense. Um, and so it, it was, so I don't, I, I, that's, my, that's my best recollection. Uh, were there any others that you can remember that come to mind? You remembering any? I think those were the big ones, the, the uh, land use and the labeling. Yeah. The, um, I know that we had some issues um, over um, how many, uh, well, in, in more recent years, we've had some issues with the southern state area versus here over what you could do in your tasting room, whether you could have, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the issue of having restaurants, uh, right. how big, how many festivals you could have and so forth. They were much more of a mind to do anything you want. Um, whereas we in the Willamette Valley were much more worried about that because there's just a whole lot more people here. And so if you have wineries doing 
restaurants and huge events every weekend, the traffic and the other disruptive issues are so huge that you cause big problems in the neighborhoods and you get all your neighbors hating you and so forth. So we felt there needed to be some limits on what you could do. Whereas in many of the wineries in Southern Oregon, there's many fewer people there. They don't have the crowds that will ever show up. Mm -hmm. um, so they wanted it to be just wide open. Mm -hmm. um, so we ended up working that out to, uh, and with it, uh, in, in between. And so they ended up being happy and we were happy. Um, so that's a continuing, they're just a, it's a different part. Uh, they, have diff they have different marketing issues than we have because mm -hmm. there's so few people there. And uh, so just, we have to just keep working them out. So I, I know we touched on a couple of the organizations that you've been a part of, but for the record, if you could state what organizations you've been in, uh, perhaps some of the roles that you've held, and what do you think has attributed to the success of these organizations? Well, we, gee, it must have been 1972 or, I don't know, three, somewhere in there, we created the first entity, Oregon, I think it was called the Oregon Wine Growers Association, OWGA, mm -hmm. Oregon Wine Growers Association. And then its name evolved over time uh, through a couple different iterations, but um, it basically started then and it, it continues today. Uh, then when we, uh, so I was president at various times or secretary or, you know, I, had, I did everything. Um, and then when we created when we we created this $25 tax um, and money was coming in, it it is state money, so it had to be managed by a state entity. And so then the Oregon Wine Board was created, and I was on that <coughs> at the beginning, um, and uh, for a number of years. And so we were then at that that entity was managing the 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 expenditure of the money, at o, principally at OSU. But some of it went to marketing, so we, we channeled the money other ways to do marketing. We hired a marketing agent and whatnot. Um, then, as far as Yamhill County, we created a Yamhill County Wineries Association. Um, and so I was instrumental in creating that, and I was on that board. Um, we had a, a Yamhill County Tourism board because we we saw that as wineries we also needed uh, to create um, draw to the county of the bed and breakfasts and the restaurants and and motels and so forth so we created a general Yamhill County tourist um, entity that I was on um, and I think that still exists I think I don't know what under what name um, and then I was I was one of the founders of the, um, the uh, International Pinot Noir Celebration. Uh, <clears throat> helped you know, raise the initial, the original funding actually, uh, what came from the Rotary, uh, McMinnville Rotary. We went to them and, and said, you know, will you stake us, will you loan us? We actually asked for a loan because we needed to get matching money from the state. Mm. And so I think the Minville Rotary gave us $10,000, the state gave us $10,000, something like that. And um, the, I remember the meeting, they went around the table and they asked everybody for a thousand bucks and 10 guys came up with a thousand bucks to stake us for that first 
uh, IPNC. And then Charlie Walker, Walker um, uh, gave us uh, Linfield, which was a shock and a, and a, and a bo great boon because uh, it was the only really good place to do it. And, but it was a shock because you know, the, the, the history of Linfield was not terribly favorable to alcohol. Um, but Charlie said this would be a good thing for the, for the college and our university, and we, we, he fought, fought it through his board, whatever he had to do, I don't know. And um, Linfield's been a wonderful home to that. that. Um, so um, all these entities I've talked about, I'd say the successes of them came from uh, everybody willing to work together and just cooperate and, and, and a minimum of ego trip issues or people trying to dominate or you know with, with hidden agendas for themselves or anything like that. Mm -hmm. People were just got down and worked and uh, shared and volunteered to do extra things you know and um, so the success purely came from people being willing to put their time in and, and make it happen. Um, I do want to let you know there's water right next to you if ah, you need okay. it. Great. I forgot to let you know Perfect. earlier. Okay. Um, I do want to continue along that thought process. You've sort of delved into my next uh, question <coughs> as far as the interpersonal dynamics for some of the first wine industry people. How did that work, especially when you're striving towards a much larger goal? Um, who was passionate about what and, and sort of what drove that forward? Well, I, I remember very clearly when we had the first OWGA, OWGA meeting, um, it was maybe 10 people and we all, we met in, in somebody's living room um, because you could all just show up and sit in the living room. Um, and so we would move from our house to, to uh, Adelsheim's or to ERAS or, um, and so we, we, we all sat, we, we could all sit in one room. And um, so it was, and we, were, and we all became very good friends because we were all fighting the same issues and trying to make this thing happen. So there was, a, there was just a friendship there. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody, uh, as I said a little bit earlier, you know, pitched in. You know, so you know, we came up with the issue of labeling. Uh, Adelsheim said, I really am interested in that, let me run that. You know, I kind of took on the land use thing. A lot of the issue about bringing in new clones and so forth, Erath was a passionate about that, and so he mm -hmm. kind of headed up working with uh, the uh, federal government, the federal uh, ag services down at Davis. And so everybody had different relationships, different places or interests, and they took on uh, things. Uh, 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 Dave Lett was also passionate about the land use thing, and he got on the board of Thousand Friends and was on that board for 20, 25 years, um, fighting those issues at a statewide level. Um, so everybody kind of gravitated naturally to the place that they um, had the most passion or the most interest or the most background. Um, and, you know, with my land use background, I'd done a lot of other and working for a consulting firm in town, I had 
as much background as anybody on legislative issues, and so I got, was very involved in a lot of the initial work at the legislature. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's, it just kind of, it kind of fell out in a natural way of people picking up things that they were interested in. Um, but there weren't very many people to pass it around to. And we were, but then slowly, you know, it went from to the point where we couldn't all meet in a living room anymore. We had to go meet in a fire hall or someplace like that. Um, but it was quite a long time where we were still just meeting in a living room. I remember one of the first rules we, we made uh, was that we would, the meetings, uh, we would start at, I don't know, 6.30 or 7 o'clock, and they often didn't end until midnight or 1 o'clock. And most everybody there had another job, so they were going <laughs> to go to their other job after they got a few hours sleep. And we recognized after just a few years that one of the problems was that we shouldn't allow any wine tasting uh, until the business part of the meeting was over. <laughs> because we would get there, everybody would bring a nice bottle of wine, and we would start sharing a bottle of wine around, and then slowly the meeting just got longer and longer. And, um, so we instituted a rule fairly early on. <clears throat> We don't get to taste the wines till we get the business part done. And so we, we could efficiently get the business part done, and then we could enjoy just chatting and talking and have a glass of wine. <laughs> so, That's a good rule. Yeah. One of the questions that Rich and I often think of when we hear of the early stories and all of your accomplishments is, how did you guys know to be so pragmatic? I don't think we knew it. I think it was the nature of the people that were drawn to the business. I mean, I think they were risk takers and um, uh, and just personality-wise, they were all cooperative, convivial people. They were. It was. Uh, I, I, I don't know how to explain why that happened, but it it wasn't that we knew that we needed to, to do it. It was just that the people that were involved were that kind of people. Mm -hmm. And that's about the best answer I can give, I guess. Just naturally visionary. Yeah, it was just the way people, people were just naturally cooperative and they wanted to cooperate. And uh, we, had some, we had some ego people. One, the biggest ego, the two biggest ego people uh, left the industry fairly early. And maybe they were driven away because they, um, uh, didn't feel comfortable being so cooperative. Mm -hmm. uh, Chuck Corey, who's now passed away, um, he had pulled up stakes and gone back to California by, I don't know, mid-80s sometime. Mm -hmm. um, and he was a very difficult person, you know, personality-wise within the group. Although he did some wonderful things, I mean, I gotta say. Um, but he had more difficulty being cooperative. And Paul Bialen had difficulties too, and he left the industry after not too long. Um, but he contributed a lot too because he had a marketing background that nobody else had, and he 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 brought in a lot of good ideas. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, it's the best answer I have. That's a good one. Um, what were some things that you guys strived for that didn't work out, or were there any? Well, I th when we started out, we had a five-year plan that um, took us 
more like 20 years to accomplish. <laughs> and I think everybody kind of had that, that we thought things would go faster than they did in terms of, of marketing outside state, particularly, mm. um, and building a reputation nationally. Um, it just took a long time to get that share of mind of wine writers, retailers, restaurants, and the general public uh, about Oregon, Oregon wine. <clears throat> and so it just, and, and for us, it was just, thank, we, we, just we, we thanked our lucky stars every day that, that the, the or, people in Oregon were so supportive because if we hadn't had the markets here, the restaurants and everybody supporting us, we would have died immediately. Mm -hmm. But Oregon really rallied around us, even though it's a very small state. <clears throat> it was enough to keep us all alive um, for this 20-year process of building a national uh, reputation to, to um, work its way out. So I think that's the biggest thing. It just took a lot longer for it all to really come together. Do you think that if the early wine folks hadn't banded together, that the wine industry would have been as successful? Oh, no way. I mean, if we hadn't all been working together, it just, it, it, it just is not something that where one person could have done it by themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, if there had been somebody came in with a billion dollars and they could do all the marketing, they, they didn't need anybody else and whatnot, then maybe we would have looked differently. But and Washington, to some extent, had that experience with St. Michelle, who was so much bigger than everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, but even there, um, St. Michelle, from the very beginning, was very conscious of the need to market Washington, as well as the Northwest, as a group. And so they always supported our, our efforts to market cooperatively, even as big as they were. And they could have just Go away, you little people. You know, mm -hmm. we can do this by ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and you look at California, Gallo is so much bigger than everybody else. They're extremely cooperative with everybody in trying to promote California and um, uh, <clears throat> just improve the industry's situation in, in the United States and in California. <clears throat> so I think a, a cooperativeness within the industry is sort of part of the GNA, DNA of the of the industry and the people that are attracted to it and who want to be in it. Um, so. so to change tracks a little bit, we're going to go a bit broader and, um, <coughs> and wrap up the interview shortly, but how have you seen Sokoblosser, the winery, and also the larger wine industry evolve? Well, I think the, the biggest evolution thing, or several evolutionary things I'm seeing, one of the largest is that a lot of us old farts are getting to the point where we need to either turn it over to the next generation or sell it or, or fold or close. Mm -hmm. um, and so the biggest evolution I'm seeing is everybody working that transition out in their own way uh, differently. Erath, uh, for example, didn't have the kids to take over the business, and so he sold out to St. Michelle. Um, and there have been others that have done that, 
a similar thing. So, um, but then there's been a, a really a, a nice sized group that have made the transition to the next generation. And Sokol Blosser is one of those. Um, and uh, it's happening in several other places too. It's really nice to see <clears throat> Irie, um, uh, Oak Knoll, um, um, several Ponzi's. others. Ponzi. Oh, yeah, Ponzi, of course. Uh, Elk Cove. Um, so um, that's one of the biggest evolutions I've seen. And that's going to continue because there are still people that are going to be coming up against this point of having to decide where do they go after they can't any longer run their business. Um, so I think we'll see either, we'll see more sales, maybe some consolidations. We haven't seen much consolidation yet of, mm -hmm. of that the happened in California starting 15, 20 years ago of one person coming in and buying four or five wineries and creating a larger marketing group, keeping the names, but uh, we haven't seen very much of that and that could be an evolutionary thing that we see more of. Um, we don't yet <clears throat> have any really huge wineries in Oregon and I don't know whether that's ever gonna happen where the, the nature of, of the business may, here in this particular state may not lend itself to that and may not uh, I mean, could, we certainly lend ourselves to some large companies like the Jackson family coming in, uh, but whether their winery will ever be really huge, I doubt it. Um, so um, I think we will see an evolution of more outside in interest coming in like we've, we've seen in the last four or five years. Um, the Jackson family in France and other Californians. Um, that's an evolution that I think will continue because we've established the fact that this is a great place to grow Pinot Noir. And <clears throat> with the issues that are starting to show up on uh, climate change, you know, it, there'll, be, there'll be a need for some of the California entities to move farther north just to be able to grow the same grapes they're growing now. Uh, that's not going to happen overnight, but it certainly looks like it's going to happen. Um, I think the other big change that's really nice to see is that, that the wineries like us that have been around a while are, you know, every year we, we make a profit and we, and we stay in business. So we aren't any more driven by this, as we talked at the very beginning of the interview, just trying to survive one more year. We now are really have the luxury of looking five and we had a board meeting today, and we were even talking about 20 years ahead, you know, what would it look like? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that we didn't ever have the luxury of that flight of fancy to think about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but now a five-year plan is a fairly normal thing um, and a necessary thing. And it's fun to be able to actually see it, uh, a five-year plan actually happening. Mm -hmm. um, so. That's a sign of maturing of the industry and the fact that we are, you know, now economically, you know, better founded and stable, and uh, people are making <clears throat> making a profit so they can reinvest and build new tasting rooms and warehouses and uh, so forth. So that's very encouraging and very heartening. It's, mm -hmm. it's fun. In your opinion, are we still a small industry? Oh yeah, we're. You look at the gallons, and yeah. we're very small. If you look though at gallons of Pinot Noir, 
we're, we're a giant. Um, and um, so in one grape, we're quite big in, in terms of the United States. Um, but in terms of the amount, <clears throat> I mean, we're, we're small. But we're, you know, we're sort of the, like the, we're the little mouse that makes a lot of noise, I guess you would say. <laughs> um, and we're, we're now well established. I mean, if you go anywhere in the world, people have heard of Oregon wine. And that's a huge ch phenomenon. I mean, that's just amazing um, to, to be able to travel in, in, in Europe and in Asia and, you know, New Zealand and Australia and have people, oh yeah, I've heard of Oregon wine. They may not have had any, but everybody's at least knows of the existence of the Oregon wine industry. So even though we're, in terms of gallons, we're not that big, we've created quite a, a good impression. Do you think that we have much more room to grow to support additional wineries? Or do you think we might hit a saturation point? You know, <clears throat> people, we've been asking that from the very first day. Um, when we first planted our first vineyard, um, everybody was asking, well, where are you going to sell these? There are no, there are no wineries. So, well, and we, we said, well, there are wineries, you know, they'll come along. And, uh, you know, Dave Lett has a little winery and ERAS starting his winery. They'll be, uh, somebody will buy the grapes. Um, and indeed, somebody did buy them. And so that same thing is just kind of continuing. I, I say now, how could there be possibly room for 700 wineries? I mean, back then I was thinking if we had 20 or 30, it would be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but every time we would run up against this thing of, have we overplanted too many grapes, somehow the market developed and they all got used. And so the predictions or worries that many people had that we've way overplanted grapes uh, didn't materialize. Um, and so I guess the short answer to your thing is, I think there's lots of room for growth. How much, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I have a hard time getting my mind around 700 wineries in Oregon, but they're out there someplace. And I don't know, I assume they're making a living or trying to, or, or I don't know. It, I find it amazing, but it's wonderful because it makes it so much easier to to market and to get things happening like are happening in Yamhill County with you know the marvelous restaurants happening on, in on Third Street and uh, the Allison Hotel in Newburgh and um, all the bed and breakfasts. You know, because there, the wine industry really is a synergy. It, it really draws its strength from. Um, the food and hospitality industries. Mm -hmm. uh, Napa Valley is still, I believe, the largest tourist attraction in the state of California in terms of number of people that visit. Bigger than Disneyland. Um, and so all those people coming there, uh, staying at motels or bed and breakfasts or whatever, uh, dining, uh, shopping at stores and so forth, it's, it's a synergistic thing that just happens. And we're seeing that in Yamhill County. And so the more wineries there are, the more that that creates that, that um, 
uh, critical mass that c attracts people to come mm -hmm. to where they think of you as a destination. So when we were only three or four or five wineries here, it was much harder to get uh, uh, tour agencies in Tokyo to talk about, let's do an Oregon wine trip. Mm -hmm. Now they do them. Um, and, but that wouldn't happen if we didn't have a critical mass and also have the places for people to eat and the places for people to stay. And they're not gonna, if, if you have no, no place to stay, people, you know, for so many years, everybody had to stay in Portland, other than if they wanted just a motel. Mm -hmm. There were a few nice little motels, but a lot of the people that were traveling wanted something more luxurious. Now with the Allison and with some of the really upscale bed and breakfast, we've got, we're getting those ingredients that we need to attract a, a, a worldwide uh, uh, tourist business. And that can't help but help every winery. Um, and so that's an evolution that I think is happening and it's very promising. And so the answer is to your question, maybe 700 isn't too many. I don't know what the right number is. Um, but I do know that having more is better because it creates a, a critical mass mm -hmm. and creates this ecosystem of hospitality and food that's really important. Did you hope that your children would take over? You know, when we started out, we never even really thought about that. Um, <clears throat> And as the kids were growing up, they all, by necessity, had to work in the business. Um, um, and it wasn't like we were slave driving them, but if they wanted to, you know, if they said, gee, Dad, I need money for a bicycle or something, we, we, our answer was always, there's mowing to be done, or there's vines to be pruned or stuff. You can earn whatever you want. So they always worked, but you always wonder in the back of your mind, are you really driving them away? Are they gonna, at the end of it, say, I never wanna get involved in that business because it's just too much work. Um, and, because a lot of kids do end up hating the business that their parents were in for various reasons. So um, we didn't know whether they would end up liking the business or not. And, I don't know that they did either. They all went away to college and did other things. Uh, um, and lo and behold, they all ended up loving it and wanting to be involved. And uh, even though Nick, the oldest, is not full-time in the winery, he's the chairman of the board and he's very active as chairman and brings a lot to the board because of running his own business uh, that he started from scratch in Portland. Um, so he contributes a lot, um, but I'm pleased as punch. I mean, I couldn't be happier because they 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 really bring so much to it that um, we, you know, at our age, you know, they just have so many new ideas and energy, and they understand the market better. Um, uh, that's the the wine market way better than than we do because they're it's more their age group and everything. And um, so they're doing a better job than we would if we had stayed in there and kept trying to run it into it. Or we were too old to 
on our cane to even <laughs> waddle in the door. Um, so they brought a lot of energy and creativity, and uh, they're they're really good at it. They really they really are good at the business. So, do you think it will continue to the third generation? <clears throat> we had a <clears throat> half of our agenda today at the board meeting was on that subject, <clears throat> and um, we we are instituting a program to 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 make it possible for that third generation to take over um, by um, having a, a, an annual uh, family forum where we, we bring all the kids that are over 13 to the, the family meeting to meet and discuss the issues in the future of the business. And uh, we have an intern program for kids to work at the winery uh, on a regular basis. We started you know, uh, hiring, when they get to be 13 or 14, hiring them for part of the summer to, to uh, help train the grapes and work. And um, so we're trying to introduce them to the business so they can see what it is, what's involved. Mm -hmm. So they would have an idea of whether they like it or not. Um, but, you know, there's, there's lots of, there's a lot more literature now of starting to become available about how family businesses do transition between the second, third, fourth generations, and what works and what doesn't work, and so we're we're studying all that, and uh, we've got time, so it's not a the third generation is the oldest is 15, and so there's there's quite a bit of time yet before we really have to face that issue, but we are thinking about it, and reading and um, uh, talking with other people who are now in their third or fourth generation to. Mm -hmm. Uh, see what they've done. Um, so we'll see. We we would like to make that possible, but we just have to wait and see what what happens. Now I know you're still involved on the board of directors, um, but I've also read that you retired. I think in '91. Um, why did you decide to retire from the business when you did? Well, <clears throat> that, that, okay, the 91 was less a retirement than we had several different things that happened at that point. Um, one was that we had kids getting ready to go to college mm -hmm. and we were still paying ourselves virtually nothing. We were putting all, every money, all the money back into the business. Mm -hmm. So we just were facing the need to have a, a more income. And we couldn't take it out of the business at that point. So Susan and I kind of had to decide one of us needed to go back to work, work mm -hmm. uh, to have another income. And it made the most sense for me to go back because it looked like I would have the biggest potential to make an income. So that was one. The second thing was that at that point, I was really exhausted um, because it just, we were you know, losing money every year and trying to keep it together and trying to keep our investors who were family members happy and you know, get these inner family things. And so it was just very wearing. Um, and then the third thing that happened was that Susan said, you know, I'd like to do this. Um, she'd been running the vineyards and had been sort of, uh, I'd been running the winery and and she said, you know, I really like to do this. So those three things kind of came together and it just suddenly made sense for her to take over the winery, for mm -hmm. me to go get another job so we could support 
the family. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't retirement. It was more a strategic family switch to mm -hmm. try and make the whole thing work. Uh, because then she, we, we didn't have to, she could continue working for the winery and without us having to require a big salary. Uh, so we could keep putting, investing the money back in the business, which we needed to do, because I had this other source of income. So that's really the way it worked out. It was sort of a three-pronged thing that came together and it just suddenly made sense. So um, uh, as the kids have taken over, you know, we've sort of formalized the board of directors, the five of us, um, and so I'm, and, and also, you know, they, um, uh, I pretty much retired from the other work that I was doing, so I'm more available. And so I'm picking up sales trips that they don't have time to do or mm -hmm. can't fit in. So I've you know, done this year Montreal, and last year I did Dusseldorf and London, and I'm doing some sales stuff in California, and um, uh, done some events in LA, and you know, whatever you know fits to, fits in. So, and I, so it keeps me involved, and I enjoy it. And Susan's doing the same thing because um, we we love the business, and I it was always hard being away, but I knew that that we needed to do that in order to make it successful. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly you guys have been. Yeah. So, but it just took a long time. <laughs> Of all the aspects of what it takes to own a vineyard and winery to all of the organizations you've been involved in, was there any one thing that you were just very passionate about or was your favorite thing? Wow. Um, I, I just, I love so many different parts of the business. Um, I don't think there was one thing. I, mean, I, I guess. My, you know, I told you that the, the, the original reason we got into it was because I wanted to have a vineyard and the agricultural thing. I think still that's the part of the business that still causes my heart to palpitate a little bit is when I walk out in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. um, and we, when, we took, when we started the vineyards, we, we purchased another number of pieces of property. Um, most of them had um, orchards on them, uh, cherries, peaches, apples, prunes, um, walnuts. And so we maintained those for 10, 15 years until we had the vineyard, the winery big enough to, to remove those orchards and put grapes in. Um, and we just planted a small sort of uh, remnant or um, uh, model uh, orchard down on the road going up to the winery to sort of uh, remember those days when we had a lot of orchards. And we were having tr trouble finding anybody to prune them because we don't have anybody anymore that prunes mm. orchards. They're all prune grapes. So I did all the pruning this winter. It's a long way of getting to oh your, answer your question. So I pruned it this winter. And, I, and in the time I was out there, I was just saying to myself, you know, I, now I remember why I enjoyed this so much. Uh, it was cold and it wasn't wasn't raining, but it was. Um, but I just really enjoyed it. So I guess the thing. So I guess anything to do with the, the vineyard and the, the orchards, uh, was probably the deepest part of my 
you know, what gets me the most going. But, mm -hmm. but there's so many other things that I just really enjoy that it, I wouldn't want to put that too far above. Just the the making beautiful wines and tasting them and and seeing the gorgeous grapes come in and seeing the get, get go through the process and and then seeing the satisfaction we get when we go out and sell it and people are happy or enthusiastic about the wines and they like them and <clears throat> um, that's very uh, heartening. So I don't know. I guess that's my best answer. That's an excellent answer. I like that one. Well, Bill, is there anything I've forgotten or anything you'd like to share with us before we conclude? I can't think of anything else. So. Anything you thought of? Oh, yes, I'm sorry, the written question. Um, we, so wine grower seems to be a pretty unique term. Right. In, you know, it's grape grower, winemaker. Do you recall how that was created or defined? Well, <clears throat> uh, there, as you can imagine, among, with the group that we had that started this industry, all masters, or I don't think we're any PhDs, but uh, uh, highly educated people, there's a lot of debate around grammar and wording. <laughs> and um, the, the final you know, uh, thing was that there just wasn't any, in English, there wasn't any better word mm -hmm. than to say wine grower. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, because just to say grape grower and winemaker meant you had to have two words. It was just so much longer. So that word, I don't know where it came from originally, uh, but it's pretty universal in the United States at least. You see that word now pretty much universally being used. Um, and I don't know whether we were the ones that started to use it the most or whether it had been used a lot in California. I just, I don't know that. Yeah. Uh, but. We didn't, we didn't invent the word. It had been around, but we pretty much adopted it as, so the, um, it became the Oregon Wine Growers Association um, and fairly early on. So that, that, we sort of settled on that word pretty early, but um, see the very first name, I'm trying to, the, It wasn't OWA at first. There was, it, was, it was a very elaborate, complicated, long name. The Oregon Viticulture Development Association or something, I don't know. It was a, you know, before we narrowed it down and shortened it to OWA, Oregon Wine Growers Association. <laughs> and when did you feel you could call yourselves wine growers? Was, is it basically if you grow grapes and make wine? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah, generally that means that you grow grapes and make wine. Because um, there are people who are just vineyard people and they just say, I'm, I'm a wine grower. They say it too. Uh, so it's become kind of the universal fallback word for, even if somebody just has a winery and doesn't grow any grapes, you hear them use the word wine grower. So <clears throat> I think it's just become the default word Right. Um. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Bill. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.